everybody! Welcome back to Surrey Write, the Surrey New Writers Festival podcast. This year we are running the festival on the 27th of May, so please do come along. Tickets are available on our website right now. Now, today on the podcast we have a very, very special guest. Her name is Melissa Addy and she spent 15 years in business, first as a project manager for uh, new product development, then mentoring over 500 entrepreneurs through innovation programs. She has an MA in innovation in business and in 2015 she became a full-time self-published author and has since written and published 16 books, primarily historical fiction, for which she has won the inaugural Novel London Award and twice been picked for Editor's Choice by the Historical Novel Society. She has a PhD in creative writing from the University of Surrey and was the Liverhume Writer-in-Residence at the British Library, where she continues to run monthly workshops. She has successfully applied for £75,000 in grants at different stages of her writing career, including for travel, her PhD, creating public art and the writing residency. Melissa focuses a lot of her talks and workshops on authors making a living and taking an entrepreneurial approach to their writing careers. She campaigns with the Alliance of Independent Authors for Ethics and Excellence in Self-Publishing. And you can read more about her and download a free novella at www.melissaaddy.com. So welcome, Melissa. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's so great to have you here. Welcome. Hello, Chiara. Thank you for having me. That's lovely to be here. I'm very excited to have you here and I'm so excited to have you at the festival. I know that you will be part of our Path to Publication panel and also running a workshop on how to make a living as an author for us, which I'm very excited about. But before we get into that, I would like to take it all the way back and take a look at where this all started. I'm yep. really interested in, in, in your journey. So, um, how and when did you decide to pursue writing? Is it something that you have always done or how did it come about for you? Uh, so I think I've always, I, I read a lot as a child. I read and read and read like a very fast and a lot of books. And I think mm -hmm. all those stories went in and spent some time kind of percolating around. And then uh -huh. I think they slowly started coming back out again. Um, mm -hmm. And... Um, <laughs> I wrote a sort of little bits here and there, different things during my 20s, um, just sort of trying on the side, um, not sort of taking it super seriously, but it was kind of like my hobby. Um, mm. So I, I did that at the beginning. Um, and then at some point I thought, oh, well, I will try, I'll try getting published. And I, I only knew about traditional publishing. I didn't know any other options. So mm -hmm. uh, I had written a picture book for children Ah. Uh, and I got an agent for it and it happened very quickly and uh, a bit too easily. <laughs> I think I got, I always say this to people, I got my first agent way too quickly and easily because I didn't have any kind of writing habit at all. Mm -hmm. I wasn't taking it very seriously. I, that wasn't even a genre of the picture books that I was that into and, mm -hmm. and I hadn't really explored genres and chosen one kind of properly as it were. So I kind of plunged in there and then she was a really lovely woman, but she couldn't sell it into publishers. We got lots of lovely mm -hmm. feedback. Oh, so nice, so nice. No, thank you. Um, and so I kind of went very quiet for a while and I, because I, I didn't have a writing habit. I wasn't regularly <laughs> producing material. Um, and I thought, okay, 
and I kind of wandered off for a bit and then I came back to her probably like two years later and went I'm gonna write historical fiction and she kind of <laughs> went um and mm. the thing is that's not how agents work they don't just generically represent you mm. they have specific contacts in publishing for a particular genre that's what they do sure. um and so she said well I I, I can't really represent you for that mm. um so she kind of amicably parted our ways uh, but I was horrified I was like oh my god I had an agent and now I've lost one what have I done like what a terrible Mm. thing to do um and so then I thought oh okay well I'm gonna have to you know find another agent uh for the historical (laughs) fiction um so I started kind of trying to do that um and uh, they were very nice I had a lot of nice feedback but kind of a lot of no and I mm. couldn't understand what the problem was. I'd written, uh, so my first novel was uh, 11th century Morocco. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's an area that not many people write in. Uh, I think there's one other author who occasionally co- sort of wanders into that area. Um, but she does sort of split time and, and sort of other areas and things. Uh, and I thought, I thought this was good. I thought, ah, I have found a niche area of history. Uh-huh. It will be my area. I will be known for this area. Um, and all the feedback was like, uh, no, lovely, lovely writing. Yes, yes, no, no. And I was mm-hmm. thinking, I don't understand the problem. Nobody said this is wrong or that's wrong or something that I could hold on to and, and fix. Um, so then I did a thing which I do recommend to people. I went to um, Jericho Writers uh, Festival of York Writing. So -hmm. if you go to writing festivals nowadays, quite often there is the opportunity to meet agents face to face. And what they will do is uh, you get to have a conversation rather than you send a submission. They say, no, thank you. That's the end of the conversation. Mm -hmm. Here, at least you can go, why? What what is it about it? Um, So I booked two agents. And they both said exactly the same thing, which was really interesting. They both said, you are a new writer. That's bad Mm -hmm. enough, bad enough risk. Second thing, you've picked an era no one's ever heard of. And I was like, yeah, Uh that's that's my thing. And they were like, no, that's a big risk. And they were like, would you like to write about the Tudors? And I was like... (laughs) No, I wouldn't like to write about the Tudors, no. And they were like, oh, okay. Did you have anything else in mind? And I said, oh, um, 18th century China. And they went, yes, that, that Mm -hmm. is much better. Write about that instead. And I was like, okay. And, you know, at that time, again, because I only knew about traditional publishing, I kind of was trying to play the game. I was trying to do what I was told. So I thought, okay, I'm going to have to go and write about a different era. Now, when you say go and write about that, that was like another two years for me of research, of writing, to then come back with another novel written in a completely different era. Um, But this time I had agents like a lot of interest Mm -hmm. uh, and got one really easily. And I was like, oh, okay, good. That's that's (laughs) interesting. Um, And then they tried to sell that one in. Um, to publishers and couldn't do it and over and over again the publishers were like really lovely yes lovely lovely no thank you Mm -hmm. Um, and I mean we had an editor come in ripped it apart put it back together again the works still nothing got very close to Harper Collins they said oh we really like it but the ending could you tense it up a bit bit more bit more you know 
uh, drama, whatever. And uh, mm -hmm. so, like, yes, go back to the editor, rip it all apart, put it back together again. Took it back to them, and they said, "Oh, that's lovely. Like that a lot." Um, we just bought something very similar. Aww. And I was like, "Oh, okay." A, oh, I didn't I, kind yeah. of think they were going to do that, and B. I was like, similar? I was like, oh my God. I thought somebody is writing a book about 18th century concubines in the Forbidden City. Oh my God. Mm. Um, and I went and found the book when that came out. I found what the book was. Uh -huh. And it was 1920s Shanghai brothel. Mm. And I was just like, how, how is that similar? To me, those yeah. were completely different things. To them, it was kind of generic you know asian woman story uh, historical fiction yeah. possibly a bit sexy who knows <laughs> similar uh you yeah. know so that tells you something about how they see books in a in a very different way i think to the reader um, yeah and i guess it also it's so interesting to hear because you know people might think okay i've, I've written a book i've got an agent great i'm done yeah no, yeah, it's really that's not the case. No. That's really not the case. No, and I was on a panel recently. I always thought maybe it was just me, and then I was on a panel recently, and I think every person on that panel who some of them had trad published and some of them had uh, indie published, self published, um, all of them had had an agent who couldn't sell the book. And mm. I think there is this mystique of this this sort of mythology of you get the agent equals you get the publishing deal and it's like no they're different steps you get the agent that's one thing the agent getting a publisher is an entirely other thing and it doesn't always happen so it's it's worth knowing i think no absolutely absolutely and did all of this happen before your phd at surrey or after your phd at surrey or... yep so that that all happened before um mm -hmm. and so i at some point uh after the near miss uh, my agent then said, shall we pick just a really little publisher? We, we'll just get it out there. We'll get it out in the world. And I was like, yes, that's all I want. I want it out in the world. Great. So we found a smaller publisher uh, mm. and they said, great, let's work together. This is going to be so good. Um, let's get started straight away. Straight away, let's get started. And I thought, great, fantastic, finally. And I, <laughs> I thought to myself now, remember all these horror stories about working with publishers and, mm -hmm. and and I was like no no you have to be professional and work well with them this is very important to be friendly and positive and blah mm -hmm. um and they said right we're gonna go we're gonna start work on the cover and I said fantastic I said I'm just gonna quickly remind you that the book is set in China but the girl is not Chinese she is mm -hmm. Uyghur and I'm like I know you will not find a Uyghur girl in the stock library photos. That's yeah. just not going to be a thing. I said, but, you know, kind of Turkish looking, that sort of look or Mediterranean mm -hmm. at the very least. That's what we're looking for here. Yeah. Um, and they said, great. Do you want to pick the girl from this? This is the stock agency we use. And I thought, this is wonderful. Look at us being really, you know. So I thought, great. <laughs> yes. Very working collaborative. Great. So I thought, okay. Hmm. I thought, I'm not even going to pick one girl. I'm going to pick five or six just to, again, be flexible. Mm -hmm. So I picked five or six girls and I sent in the references. I said, here's some girls. They all look great. Any of these would do. And they wrote back and went, mm, how about this? And they sent me a, a picture of a mm -hmm. geisha 
in oh. full hair makeup costume. And I oh, was like, God. okay, now we're in the wrong country because that's mm. Japan and mm. also the wrong ethnicity, which I just told you was a thing. Um, you know, what? It's, it was really like, you know, like a geisha is a cultural icon. It's not a generic yeah. Asian woman. Um, mm -hmm. It's like me saying, I want a picture of an old lady, an old English lady, and them sending me a picture of Queen Elizabeth II, you know? It's not <laughs> the same thing. Yes, technically that's an old lady, but really that's a cultural icon. Um, yeah. And I, I just, I looked at it and I just remember sitting in my office and just being like, oh my God, what is this? Oh. And I went back and I... I said no. I mean, I think I spent like an hour phrasing the email to say no because <laughs> yeah. I was so afraid of messing it up. And I was like, no, you can't put that. And they came back and said, you're being very difficult. They oh, actually God. wrote that. <laughs> and I remember thinking, okay. And I went back to my agent. I said, I have signed the contract. Have they yeah. signed the contract yet? And she said, no, the paperwork is still whatever. Mm -hmm. And I said, do they know that I've signed the contract? And she said, no. And I said, I am begging you to take the contract, shred it, say that <laughs> I hadn't yet done it, and get me out of this because I cannot have my book go out with a geisha on the front. Yeah. I will be so mortified that yeah. I, can't, I can't have my name on that. And thank God, because she was my agent, she did that. Yeah. Um, and I, I still, the other day I was thinking about this story and I thought that was eight years ago. Mm -hmm. The deal was for seven years. Wow. I would have had that book back one year ago. For seven years, it would have been their book to do with as they wished. Mm -hmm. whatever on the front cover they could have had anything they wanted and I just I'm still so grateful to her for standing oh. by me who was her client and yeah. getting me out of that that deal but, that, that's so scary that's actually very scary because uh, I mean of course I understand you know all marketing and everything but at the end of the day you know it's your name that's on the cover yeah so people are not necessarily going to make the connection that authors don't really actually have that much of a say in terms of cover design. Um, and that's, that's scary. It Goodness is a bit scary. scary. <laughs> <laughs> and again, I was devastated. I felt like, and I felt like, oh my God, I have somehow messed this up again. Like, oh. what, what is this? And at that point, my age, I mean, I have to say both agents were such nice people who work their socks off to try and find publishing deals so I never had a problem with them at all um and at that point I said I'd sort of started reading a little bit about self-publishing and I said you know what I I have had enough of this now I have had enough of being told what to do being told jump and I say how high you know yeah. for seven years I'd done that for seven years by that point that's a long time and I was like enough now enough this is ridiculous um and I said I'm going to self-publish I'm going to put it out there and if it's awful and I don't deserve to be an author <laughs> then mm -hmm. fine it will sink won't it it'll just disappear and that'll yeah. be the end of that and I'll have been taught a lesson um so at that point I said I'm going to self-publish um Sorry, that was some weird beep. Um, and my um, 
my agent was like, fine. She then had other things that happened and we went our ways and she was, but she was very kind about it. She was like, yeah, I get what yeah. the problem is there. Yeah. <laughs> I get yeah. what's happened here. Actually, I was going to ask, how, how did your agent then get it? Because I suppose, I mean, I don't know a lot about self-publishing, but what I do know is that basically you do everything yourself, don't yeah. you? So yeah. most people that do self-publish don't actually have an agent because I guess yeah. that's the point that you normally go towards the self-publishing because you don't yeah. want to go down the traditional route and get an agent and, and a publisher, yeah. etc. So how, how did she... Yeah, how did she respond? Was she then just fine with it? She yeah. was okay with it. She she was a very nice woman. And I think she felt like, you know, I had tried. I had done everything I'd been told to do and yeah. done it, you know, kind of willingly and cheerfully and, you know, not tried to be difficult with anybody. Um, and I just got to the point where I was like, that is enough now. And she kind yeah. of was like, fine, you know. Um so that was that. So then I went down the self-publishing route and I spent literally six months just mm -hmm. reading and reading and reading to try and understand how self-publishing worked because I knew nothing about it really. Um, and just trying to figure out how that, how the actual logistics of it all worked, which was mm -hmm. a, a big learning curve. Um, and at that point, so I just had uh, my second child and I worked out basically that going back to work and paying for childcare for two children meant, even though I was on a perfectly good salary, I would be bringing home a hundred pounds a month. And mm. I was like, well, I, I don't really see the point then. What's the point? <laughs> That's yeah. all I'm going to bring home because I'm going to spend it all on childcare and not see the kids. What's the point there? Mm. Um, so I remember at that point I said to my husband, if if I were to try being an, a writer full-time at this point, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm looking after the kids, then I don't actually have to bring in as much money as I would have done if I was working and paying childcare. I would have to bring a small amount would be enough. What, mm -hmm. could, you know, is that possible? Could we manage that? Um, and he was like, yeah, we, we can try that. <laughs> I think he was a bit like, oh. oh but he was God. like, yeah, yeah, we can try that. I had some savings. Um, mm -hmm. And I thought, I'm going to self-publish and, and do this. And give um, it a try. And I'm going to try. Yeah. Um, and it was very interesting to me that at that point where I kind of made that leap of faith really mm -hmm. because you know it was like how where's the money going to come from <laughs> yeah. it was very surprising to me how many doors kind of opened up and mm. I remember even saying to my husband being like what is this I've wanted to be a writer for a long time these doors didn't open what is this and he said I, I think you jumped you know I think you made yeah. the, the commitment and it did something <laughs> it sounds like really woo, but it, it kind of did something different um, I saw a grant at mm -hmm. the British Library. Well, I saw a grant for money to be a writer in residence um, uh -huh. uh, with the Leverhulme, and uh, they and I. But you, the the host organisation, if you like, had to enter you. They had to use the portal. You couldn't apply directly. The host had to apply. Mm -hmm. And I already had contacts with the British Library because I'd done business workshops there for them yeah um and i said to them i'm gonna switch over to being a, a writer now 
would you enter me for this grant? And I, I was like, I'll write everything. I'll write the whole thing. You just have to, you have to put it into the portal and there are only 10 days to go. Oh gosh. And they said yes, which again, one of those things where you're just so grateful. You're like, thank you. Um, and they put me in. I'm not even sure they thought I'd get it. I think they just thought, well, well whatever. If she gets it, great. And if not, doesn't matter to us, you know, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I got it. So it was enough money uh, for a year of my time mm -hmm. uh, to spend at the British Library two days a week um, being a writer in residence. So I, it, it was running workshops that were free because my time was already paid for, running yeah. workshops for authors. Um, and so we did a sort of twin strand. We did storytelling for entrepreneurs and mm -hmm. entrepreneurial skills for authors. So it was a sort of crossover of two things. Oh, the tea, yeah. Um, yeah, which was fun. And I wrote two little books while I was there, sort of quite short books, but interesting. And mm -hmm. um, did two pop-up exhibitions. And it was just a really fantastic, fun, interesting year. Um, and yeah. simultaneously, my sister had said to me, why don't you apply for funding to do a PhD in creative writing? Uh -huh. Mm -hmm. And I said, don't be ridiculous. Nobody is going to pay for you to do <laughs> creative writing PhD. That's all going to go to the science subjects. And she said, no, no, I know someone who got funding. And I was like, okay, if you say so. I mean, I don't believe this at all, but whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and at the point where she said it to me, again, with the very bad timings, um, I was like, okay, so I applied, but I think at the time there was only one university that hadn't got to the deadline. I mean, I was right on the deadline. Yeah. Uh, it was sort of January time. And, you know, the doors get shut on the funding and I kind of applied and um, didn't get it, but I did get shortlisted. And I thought, mm -hmm. ah, okay, if I got shortlisted, it can't have been that terrible what I wrote. It must have, been, it must have had some sort of legs to it. So then uh, while I was doing the British Library thing, Mm -hmm. I reapplied the following year um, to uh, more universities because this time I was in properly with the deadline and everything. Uh, and I got Surrey University, which was just, it was like the best thing to be given funding for three years to yeah. sit and write a book. It was just, I think it's one of the nicest creative gifts I've ever been given because you felt so protected because of the yeah. period of time. Like the British Library one was amazing, mm -hmm. but it was one year and you felt like the clock was ticking from the word go. Whereas three years just felt like, oh, you know, you can, you can really, you can explore things, you can take your time you up you felt really protected like you're in this bubble you've got three years to get yourself going really well um, it takes the stress away doesn't it i i, I feel exactly. like uh, a lot of the well the problems with writing is that obviously you don't get paid while you're writing unless obviously you've got some sort of grant you don't get paid while you're writing so really um you still obviously have in the back of your mind the fact, oh goodness, I need to pay the rent. Oh goodness, I need to pay the, the gas bill. August, all of these things. Exactly. Um, and you don't actually feel like you've got the time to just sit down and focus and just write down what you want to write down. Take the time to, you know, make it be terrible. If it needs to be terrible, have the time to yeah. like, and explore it further. Um, 
so yeah, it feels like a dream, really, isn't it? That yeah. someone actually pays you to study. That's great. That's it was amazing. It was an absolutely amazing thing to get. A, because you felt so protected from the outside world that you didn't have to waste time going and finding other sources of income because you had enough mm. to be getting by on for, for three years. B, because you've then got two supervisors who are, you know, you're very, uh, I mean, with a PhD, it's, you are kind of on your own to some extent in that you are out there researching. You have an enormous freedom to look into what you want to look into, which is wonderful. But you do have two people who've got your back, who are there kind of gently nudging you this way and that going, have you read this? Have you read that? Have you considered that that potentially links to that? And, you know, helping with these things and helping to, to shape your creative writing and your academic writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had two really lovely um, supervisors. So um, that was really lovely to, to have those people on kind of on your side. So yeah. I had Paul Vlitos and I had Rachel Hahn mm-hmm. and they were both really awesome. Um, so that was fantastic. Um, and also I looked at that and I thought, right, I've got three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in order to make a living with books, you need lots of books. You can't, one yeah. or two ain't going to do it just isn't so you have to have lots of books and I thought right I've got three years where the books themselves don't even have to be making money I don't need to worry about marketing them I don't need to worry about any of that I just need to get them out and written Mm -hmm. Um, and in the end I wrote well I published eight Mm -hmm. books in those three years wow yeah people always go wow and then I go I'm gonna I'm gonna correct the wow a little bit for you so one was a picture book which was just for fun and you know part of having that protection was to go you know what I'm gonna do a book that's just for fun and for my children and Mm -hmm. as an exploration and that's a nice thing to be able to do one of them was the original novel that I'd written which when I went back to it, I was like, oh, actually, you know, I like this novel. I It needs a good edit because it hadn't had that. Um, but apart from that, it's good. So I cleaned mm-hmm. up that one. I'd written half of the second one in that series. So I finished it. Um, one of them was my PhD novel. And then I wrote three um, from scratch. Um, yeah. But, you know, that was possible to do that many because I didn't have to do anything else. I yeah. literally just had to stay on board with the PhD and mm-hmm. write books. Um, and that meant by the time I finished the PhD, the book income had taken over from the grant, from the, mm-hmm. the, the funding, which was an amazing feeling to be able to pull that off. Um, and that was the the gift of those three years was to be able to build a platform of income to then be able to be continue writing but that's absolutely brilliant um i was actually going to ask you you know you've you've written so many books and you've sort of answered my question already in in the sense that my question was going to be well what's your secret what made you write all these books how did you write all these books and also if the phd phd sorry helped your processes in in any way and it feels like they sort of well, they were sort of like treading along each other, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. Me if I'm wrong. Um, but And that's such a brilliant idea. I I had not even thought about <laughs> the idea of possibly, you know, writing so many books to then actually have an income from them. 
Yeah. I so, have never thought about it. <laughs> so, my, yeah, so my view was I've got three years where I'm protected. So yeah. uh, this is my chance to put out enough books that will pick up from the grant when the grant finishes. Mm -hmm. So that was a really good thing to be able to do. And a bit of playfulness, you know, with the picture book and what have you. Again, that picture book was mostly for my kids and for the fun of it. But because I do a lot of teaching other authors, for me to only ever have done historical fiction would have been a bit limiting. So the fact that I can go, oh, you're doing a picture book. Look, you need to know this about it. You need to know that about it. Those other books were very beneficial yeah. for me to have practiced and tried out for myself to be able to pass on information about them so that was good and and did you self-publish all of those books that you so I self-published all of those books yes um and wow. the, the um I, it was just a real a learning curve I mean the thing with self-publishing is I think the first one you do is terrifying yeah. and confusing and you have to learn so much so fast Mm -hmm. But once you've done that first one, a lot of things get easier and easier because by then you found an editor, you found a cover designer, you found either you do your own interior formatting, <clears throat> sorry, or someone else can, can do it for you. You've kind of put your team in place. So mm -hmm. that then makes the second book a lot easier because you're like, okay, right. So now <laughs> these people can step in and do their thing. Mm -hmm. um, I think self-publishing is always a bit of a misnomer because the self bit implies that you're going to do everything and you're not. You are in charge of everything. You're yeah. not doing everything. So putting together your team whilst frightening at the beginning does make each individual book easier as time goes yeah. by. So whilst we are talking about self-publishing, um, of course, I know that we're probably going to go further into this during the panel anyway um but i was wondering what do you think the best perk of self-publishing is and why should authors go towards self-publishing rather than traditional publishing well the the usual answer i give is that you have creative control mm -hmm. and that <laughs> given my experiences with geishas and the like uh, <laughs> is quite precious to me <laughs> sure. um, so the creative control i think is important and part of that is also the ability to make mistakes, to, to do it wrong and to go, oh, that's what happens when you do it wrong. Okay, well, now I'm going to try this other thing and, and to be okay with that and to have a little bit of exploration, if you like. It's not always fun yeah. when you mess it up, but, you know, it's still in your control to think about how you want things done. So I think that is a, is a really big and important part of why I do it and why I think a lot of people benefit from it. However, oh more more statistically <laughs> um, I do a lot of work with the Alliance of Independent Authors on their campaigns and this past year um, we kept looking at the, you know the author income surveys that come out and they go oh mm -hmm. it's it's declining it's declining it's declining every time it comes out it's declining all around the world every survey and we were thinking it doesn't seem right because the people we talk to in self-publishing anecdotally doesn't fit with us we're not we don't think it's right and these surveys are almost always heavily towards the traditionally published authors and they're not mm -hmm. written very well for indie authors to answer like when you read the questions mm. they're written for that model not for self-publishing model and so it makes yeah. it quite hard to answer them 
And so we thought we need some new data on this. So the Alliance of Independent Authors commissioned a third party to come in and do an independent survey. Mm -hmm. And uh, the stats came out and we presented them at London Book Fair this year. And statistically, you are better off self-publishing, self-published authors earn more than traditionally published authors. And wow. not only that, but their amount is going up and it's going mm -hmm. up by 53%, which is oh, wow. phenomenal. Whereas the other thing. two are kind of dropping by like 27 to 40 odd percent um, Gosh. each time. So that is now, <laughs> whereas my other answer is important and about creative control and, and things that are very important. Yeah. This new stat, I think, is a very big answer now, you know, because if you look oh, at that and you go, an author who's prepared to take on the fact that you're then running a business and you do need to be prepared to take that on, of course, statistically is going to make more money than someone traditionally published. And that's a really important thing. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something that I never would have thought, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and again, that shows how much I know about self-publishing, <laughs> I guess. But um, I know how much it's changing. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I guess you always see, you know, these big names coming out of big publishing firms. But I guess really that's the smallest percentage, really, isn't it? Yeah. Not everybody well, ends up that way. Yeah. Well, I tend to say to people, you know, the reason why... 100k advance is in the news it's because it's news it, yeah it's newsworthy it's not standard if you think that's standard then you're going to be very disappointed <laughs> <laughs> standard is more like 1000 to 5000 maybe 10,000 mm -hmm. you know the yeah. reason the 100k advance is in the news is because it's unusual and therefore worthy of the news yeah, yeah of course um now we were chatting earlier a little bit about um, your business career, well, about the fact that before um, your PhD, before you started being a writer, uh, you were in business, weren't you? Yeah. And um, you did your MA in Innovation in Business. Um, and I was wondering, it, it sounds like this previous career really does impact the way that you run your um, business right now. As you said, writers yeah. are their own business, haven't they? Um, so yeah, I, I was wondering how how does it ex um, affect your writing? Do you think it, it did help then in terms of making you a successful author? I think so in the, the business side did not frighten me. Mm -hmm. uh, I realized that was gonna, you know, in, be involved. So that was yeah. okay by me because I'd, I'd done that before. So that was all right. Mm -hmm. And the second part was I had mentored all these entrepreneurs for a government grants program. And so I'd seen up close, you know, literally maybe 500 entrepreneurs come by me and tell me their story and yeah. I'd explore how they worked and all these things. So I think just that thing where you see people do something over mm -hmm. and over. It's why, you know, the children of musicians are frequently musicians. It's because they've got yeah. instruments all over the house and people are singing and it seems like a normal thing to do. When yeah, you have right. 500 entrepreneurs sit in front of you and tell you that this is what they do, it becomes more and more normal to you rather than thinking, oh, I'm not sure I could manage that. So mm -hmm. that side of things, I think, became less worrying. Um, you know, I did a master's in, in business innovation. So, so that again, that thing of taking creativity and business and putting them together and seeing them as, as a, 
part of each other, not two completely separate things. You know, a lot of people say things like, oh, I couldn't possibly do marketing and things. I know nothing about it. And I'm thinking, mm -hmm. okay, but you can learn, A. And yeah. B, marketing's quite creative. It involves really trying to come up with creative solutions to things. You're already a creative person. It can't be that much of a stretch to move on to that side of things, yeah. I think. So, um, yeah, I always find that a slightly odd objection because I think also you must have learned to write. I don't think anybody yeah. comes out magically writing really well. Um, but I tell you something interesting. What's really cool about learning yeah. to write is that you don't realize you're getting better because yeah. it's really hard to tell from your own stuff. So when I joined Surrey, mm -hmm. uh, my PhD supervisor had seen the first novel I'd self-published and mm -hmm. he'd said yes on the basis of that and my application and everything. Yeah. Um, and then I came in. Now, that book had gone through like three rounds of editing with a professional editor. We nearly got a publishing deal. You know, it was very clean mm -hmm. and very polished. And so my first session... Uh, I brought in 4,000 words of the new book that was going to be the PhD novel. I'd literally, like, hammered it out and just printed it. I don't think I even looked through it. And I brought it in to him, and he went, yeah, this is very good. It's very polished. It's better than the other one. And I was like, how? <laughs> I was like, how can that possibly be better? The other one's been super polished by lots of people this has just been like thrown onto the screen and thrown onto a piece of paper for you and he's like well because you're getting better because you're writing yeah. more and you've written more books so you're right. just getting yeah. better and he could see it and i couldn't i mean now i can see like i can see the first book versus later books but i couldn't see like one book to another book yeah um but that was a really funny thing to me a learning that you're you are getting better all the time whether or yeah. not you realize it which is quite yeah. encouraging <laughs> absolutely and I guess it's the same with learning you know how to market yourself and how yes. to see yourself more as a business I struggle with this a lot and and I'm a writer but I'm also an actor and as an actor you need to do the same thing really yeah um, and I think like myself a lot of creative people are just terrified by the idea of being a business yeah um, and because they see business like it's such a different thing from yeah. being creative but actually you're right maybe maybe it actually isn't really I think and it has a lot of creative elements to it yeah no I think I, I would agree with you I definitely would agree with you and and it is a learning curve it definitely is a learning curve um and and it seems like your work really is all about blending blending this creativity and the business side um and I know obviously you run a lot of workshops on how to make a living as an author and we are so extremely lucky to have you <laughs> run one for us as well and I cannot wait for it be um, very exciting oh yes I'm super excited about it. <laughs> um but yeah so it does really seem like you are leading the way for for authors to take themselves more seriously as well. Um, and I was wondering, what made you so passionate about the topic, you know, of, of authors being paid? <laughs> Fair amount. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, first of all, I wanted to be paid. And yes. secondly, um, I just found it very odd. I think because I'd been in business mm -hmm. and then I switched over. And this thing where suddenly all your work isn't going to be paid. Doesn't matter how much work you put in, doesn't matter how much 
passion, doesn't matter how talented, doesn't matter, not that I'm saying I'm super talented, but it just doesn't seem to equate. Yeah. And I couldn't figure out, I was like, is it because I enjoy it that you think I shouldn't be patriot? Because I enjoyed my other jobs. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I worked at Sainsbury's head office and I had a lovely time and I used to walk to work with a big smile on my face. I enjoyed yeah. it and I got paid good <laughs> money. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the next jobs I had, I enjoyed and I got paid. And mm -hmm. it's just really odd to be kind of, no, that doesn't pay. Like, why? And um, there's a fantastic book that people should read. Um, it's called Real Artists Don't Starve. And it's mm -hmm. by Jeff Goins. And um, he's like, you've got this thing in your head, this sort of mythology about the, the artist in the garret thing. And he's like, but Michelangelo and people like that, they were being paid. They were on yeah. commission. They were, you know, they didn't just go, oh, I really fancy painting the Sistine Chapel's ceiling. Yeah. Someone paid them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's just a different model that we've somehow got used to. I don't know why we've got used to it. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, in the past, you would have a patron who thought you were particularly good they would pay for you particular jobs would be paid for it's just really weird to develop a whole model that everyone seems happy with <laughs> I'm like yeah. why are you not challenging this all the time um there's some really you know cool people who've kind of stuck their necks out and gone no this is not acceptable um yeah. you know and just why would you not be paid? <laughs> um, Joan Harris is one on Twitter. She, she's got a lot of examples where she's like, somebody asked me to come to France for a whole week, teach writing workshops for the whole week and not be paid. And she's <laughs> like, why, why would you think that was okay? I, oh, gosh. If it was any other topic that you wanted me to do, you'd be paying thousands for that. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah, I don't know where that comes from. I completely agree with you there. Yeah. And I, I just feel like it's a social change. I mean, now we might be going a bit into like a bit of a deeper conversation, but I think it is a social change that needs to happen because yeah. all of a sudden, and I don't know where this comes from, but all of a sudden creative jobs are just seen like, oh, it's a hobby, something that you do on the, on the side. Uh, they're not taken seriously, which I, this is why I say that it really does feel like you are leading the way for writers to take themselves more seriously and also hopefully for the industry in general to take writers more seriously and yeah. and stop by writers it's the whole creative industries really yeah. so yeah i think there's i think there's a lot of um really cool people especially in self-publishing who are really pushing for that um, mm -hmm. But I, I, yeah, it is just a really odd mythology to kind of embrace as well. You get mm -hmm. artists who sort of deliberately, I don't know, you get people repeating it. They kind of go, oh, well, you know, obviously I'm an artist, so obviously I'm impoverished. And you're like, mm -hmm. and why are you repeating that as if that's okay? Why are you not really annoyed about it and doing something different about it? It's It's a... It's one of, it becomes one of those self-fulfilling things because if you don't expect to be paid and someone says, I'm not going to pay you, then you go, oh, okay. You don't go, I'm sorry, free. what? Yeah. Like, how is that possible? Um, so, yeah, I think it's really important. And also what I think is important is we have the, we have a, a sort of odd 
mythology, one end of which is the starving artist in the garret, and that's mm-hmm. sort of standard, or ultra millionaire, the ones that made it. Yeah. Yeah. And you think, no, what I'm interested in for artists, writers, because that's what I focus on, but artists sure. generally, is the bit in the middle, I, just an ordinary mm-hmm. wage, just yeah. an ordinary job level and living level is fine. I don't, it's not necessary to have the super millions because you can't control that. Yeah. And the artist in the, you know, starving artist in the garret thing is just crap. So mm-hmm. I just wanted the bit in the middle. Ordinary living. Yeah. Absolutely. You know what? I say this, actually, I say this to my parents a lot because obviously they're worried about my career, of course. Yeah. Like, obviously. <laughs> and this is why I say, you know, I, I don't need to be rich and famous and have publishing um you know like millions and stuff all i want is to be able to make a living out of my heart of out of my creativity that's really what i want to do that's my yeah. dream it's not about being a multimillionaire with five million books published and and a hollywood career yeah um it's just about making a living isn't it that's yeah what, that's what we want <laughs> and until you have the arts making a living you are not going to get diversity in the arts so everybody yeah. goes on about diversity in the arts and i'm like no people just have to be able to make a living if they mm-hmm. can make a living an ordinary living the diversity will sort itself out. The reason Absolutely. you don't have diversity is because people who are from poorer backgrounds, perhaps from immigrant backgrounds, where their parents mm-hmm. are very worried about them being able to make a living and be okay, will then say, whatever you do, don't go into the arts because this doesn't yeah. make money and I need you to be safe. I need you to be an engineer or a doctor or something that makes money. So yeah. that's why the diversity shrinks down you you don't have to worry about the diversity angle you have to worry about the income if you fix that the diversity will just fix itself because people from backgrounds who currently would go that's not possible for me mm-hmm. will go oh no actually it's doable it may not yeah. bring in the millions but it is doable and i can have the same amount of money that i would have had doing a boring office job or something that i didn't particularly want to go into yeah. I can make that money doing something I really love. So I really, that's one of the reasons I'm really very keen on being able to make a living as an artist or as a creator in all the various arts, because they all have the same problem. Yeah. Um, but I can only work on the bit that I can work on. Okay. Um, I just like to, when I do workshops with people, to just go, you need to question this. You need to start questioning this and expect to be paid. Because mm-hmm. the other problem is, if everyone believes the same mythology, then, you know, when you and I get asked to write something and they go, oh, for nothing, mm-hmm. unless you and I both say no, then they'll just pick whichever one said yes and run with the, the cheapest, freest one. Um, yeah. So you have to have everybody going, uh, no. <laughs> and then yeah. they'll be forced to pay. Unfortunately, yeah. for them. Well, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Um, and and on, on this topic, really, because uh, you're absolutely right. The, the the issue is that people have three, four jobs in order to pay for the rent. And yeah. then how can you no, then focus on your creative career if no. you've got three or four jobs? No. Um, so, for, so then what would be your first tip? 
for a writer who's looking to make a living um, with, their heart, with their art, but they don't know where to begin. And perhaps they do have three jobs and they're like, I just don't have the time to focus on my writing. What would you say to them? Oh, okay. Well, there's there's kind of two things. One is a one is a mental thing, and one mm-hmm. is a one is a practical thing, and they kind yeah. of go together though. One is, yes, it's very difficult to write books as well as maintaining whatever other things you have going on in life. But if I could go back, I would have, I would have buckled down earlier on and written more books because I would have come that point where I had the PhD protecting me and I was like right quick write lots of books I could have been building those books up over a longer period it would have taken me longer but Mm -hmm. I could have been building those up to start bringing in money because you need lots of books I could have started that earlier and just kept at it steadily so the first thing is get yourself a really steady writing habit it doesn't have to be a lot um, you know, you do 500 words a day. That's something like 300,000 words a year. You do 250 words a day. You're already a novel and a draft and a novella up every year. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, just start doing that regular writing because A, your writing is going to get better and B, you're building up your back catalog. So that's a practical side. On the other sort of mental side, start noticing the fact that you're not being paid in the arts just start yeah. watching and so watch what people offer what they don't offer um not just to you but other artists just start thinking are they being paid a reasonable amount of money here mm-hmm. is this right just keep watching and watching and watching and this whole thing where people go oh you'll get visibility <laughs> and exposure and you're like yes you tell me when I have to pay my bills if I can write back a check for exposure and visibility. <laughs> it doesn't work like that, you know? Nope. Um, so just, yeah, those two things. The practical element is write as much as you can as, and mm-hmm. build that writing habit. And the other thing is just start noticing. Just the more you notice, the more hopefully you'll get a bit annoyed with that. Yeah. Uh, and then you can start building that mindset of actually I do expect to be paid. Yeah, And building up to that, um, one of the things we're going to do in the workshop um, at the festival is look at examples of where I've been asked to attend an event or a workshop or whatever, and the price that was offered and mm-hmm. my thought processes around that. And, the, you know, the natural things that come up where you feel greedy for asking more or rude or like you're some kind of diva who thinks you're all that or, mm. you know, whatever, and them working out, but what does that really mean, that amount of money? And th- so I've put together a whole bunch of different case studies just going, this was what it was like that time, that's what it was like that time. So they can see, no, it isn't an easy thing because it's not normalized yet yeah. to be paid well in the arts, that every time you have to go, hmm, and is it enough what I'm being asked for here? You know, what I'm going to be paid for here? And how would I make it more or make it acceptable to myself for my own income and that kind of thing so it's that's one of the things we're going to look at mindset is almost everything so the session we're going to run is about how to make a living and i start with mindset and honestly if i then after half an hour of that walked out of the room that would probably be the best bit i could give somebody is the mindset bit 
Wonderful. Thank you so much, Melissa. This has been absolutely brilliant. I cannot wait to be in your session. I'll definitely be there. I <laughs> be definitely fun. will. Um, but thank you so, so much for joining us today. It's been so brilliant to talk to you. Thank you thank so much. Thank you. It's been um, an absolute pleasure. Thank you again. And thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Please do come along on the 27th of May at the University of Surrey. We cannot wait to have you and we will talk to you soon. See you there.